Welcome to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. I'm your host, Kim Aquaviva. Today's episode, Walk in My Shoes with Sophia Zupans. Welcome to MDASH. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. So to start things off, could you introduce yourself um, and tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. So my name is Sophia Zupans and Currently, I'm a 2019 Thomas J. Watson Fellow, and the Watson Fellowship is a one-year traveling fellowship that is pretty much, I, I think, unlike any other fellowship out there. It's, uh, they say it's to promote a year of independent, individualized exploration. So the idea behind it is to sort of stoke all of our deepest passions uh, without the traditional pressures of a job or uh, in a research community, academic publishing, and really just sort of letting a lot, a bunch of 22 year olds out loose into the world to see where investigating their passion takes them and what new insights they garner from said investigation. Um, and so my project is entitled Dispatches from Death, Exploring How We Die. And the focus of the project is succinctly said, trying to understand uh, what palliative care is and why it matters, which you know, interestingly, I think sort of naively going into this, I didn't think I was going to get one answer, but uh, there's certainly perhaps even many more answers than I imagine uh, that I'm discovering even only three months into this year, of almost four months actually into this year of a fellowship. Um, my background is actually in economics and math. That's what I graduated Wellesley with degrees in. And I use those degrees often to sort of applied to, to social questions. And most recently in the last two years of my undergraduate, uh, working at, in Dana-Farber at the Department of Palliative Care and Psychosocial Oncology, doing some quantitative work uh, surrounding eliciting patients' goals and wishes from the medical record. And I also did hospice volunteering. And so both of those stoked my interest in these topics. And uh, this year right now is a much more sort of qualitative and anthropological take on it, which is, good and outside of my comfort zone, which makes it even better. Fantastic. And when you think about your identities, what are some of the identities that you carry with you on your travels? So I think the one that has been sort of most prominent, um, largely because it's the one that I think I'm asked about almost every day is my identity as an American, which is one that I never really thought much about because I never lived nor really traveled outside of the United States much before uh, endeavoring on a year of travel outside of the United States. Uh, but I know with our, all that happens in the news every day, and I think I get, I'm put in a position often where I'm answering questions about you know, what, is, what is all this news about the impeachment, or what do you think about this thing that your president tweeted recently? Um, and so it, it, it puts me in a position for that intersection of my identity that I had never had to think much about before because while I hold my own political beliefs that are generally misaligned with those that are currently being represented um, in various political offices, I also hold my identity as an American and as somebody who is proud to be from a country where I think we're afforded many more rights and liberties than most people are. Um, so it's a delicate balance that I feel like I have to walk when I'm asked questions about our current political situation. But um, And then certainly there's also my identity 
as a lesbian and as a cisgender woman that uh, also pervades through to my travel with obviously with being a woman thinking about my own safety at in navigating new and foreign places on almost a daily basis and then um, in my sexual identity thinking about what are the sort of laws and social norms that exist in this place and will I be I have to sometimes be very careful with what I say and what I reveal if the laws and the norms in the place are not very accepting. Interesting. When you think about all the travels and all the places that you're going, and certainly there's always a potential that you might need healthcare in anywhere right. you travel to, how do those identities, whether it's as, a, as an American, as a cisgender woman, as a lesbian, how do those identities impact how you feel about your ability to get good care in the different places that you're traveling? Um, so firstly, as a foreigner in all of these places, um, I think at times the the varying expectations of the sort of doctor-patient relationship play a role, um, and also the varying degrees of, um, of I, I guess, the ability of us to communicate, how generally, I've actually had to interact with a couple doctors thus far, inclusive of this morning when I had a, a, a scope put into my ear to fix this ear infection. Um, and so at times there's that little bit of the language barrier that comes in when I'm, you know, perhaps trying to explain what I think is happening in me and they're trying to explain to me what they're about to do. And there's a certain element of trust that I, I think I just have to sort of take a deep breath and blindly accept in these interactions because like today, for example, he's explaining, oh, you know, there's sand and other debris in your ear. And I'm thinking, what is, when did I get sand in my ear? You know, and I'm like, but it, clearly it really is bothering me. So I'm needing to to do something and and he's explaining what he's gonna do with this scope and you know I sort of just walked into this clinic today and then 35 minutes later I'm laying on a table like looking at the ceiling fan and he has the scope in my ear and I'm thinking oh my gosh for somebody who spends who's nine to five quite literally this year is to be walking around hospitals and clinics and talking to patients and talking to doctors that you, you never I think really get rid of that fear that or at least I, maybe it's hard for me to get rid of the fear that I feel and the vulnerability that times that I feel as a patient, which I think is only magnified because of my, perhaps for lack of a better term, because of the otherness which with, I am bringing into many different situations this year. So where are you located now? I'm in, I'm in Delhi. I'm in India. So when you think about these travels, I mean, it's incredibly exciting and it sounds like every place you go is a new adventure from what I was reading on your blog. What insights have you gotten about healthcare and otherness in your travels? And maybe it's not just about healthcare, but about the topic you're studying about death. I say, I think I, I have two separate thoughts, I guess, to address both parts of that question. Um, because you're very right. It is what I've sort of joked to people is, uh, you know, the ironic part about this fellowship for me is in some ways I get to die every two to three months. The life that I build in these places and the people that I meet, I leave. I, I have to leave. That's that's the nature of this. And leaving necessitates saying goodbye and informing, I guess, at, at times the best sense of closure you can to a place or to, to people or to an organization that you've come to really grow quite fond of. And 
um, so I, so you know, it is very much like every two months you restart and you, you have to go, or at least the approach that I've taken is going into each new restart with a completely open mind and absolutely no expectations for what I may or may not find because uh, what I've learned thus far is that sort of the best way to do this is to get on the ground and, and then start getting a sense of, okay, what are the organizations here? Who are the people that are working in this space? Um, and how can I maybe use my preliminary contacts to get a little bit closer to them rather than trying to plan everything so far ahead? Because it's, it's quite impossible for a year to be thinking about what I'm going to be doing in March when I'm you know not even knowing where uh, I, you know, I'm going to be in December quite yet, for example. But in that way, what I've, I think what I've, I'm trying to, I don't know if I've really thought about that, the idea of otherness in healthcare. And in, in some ways, that's actually what my project is, a, is about, or is how it was, is, you know, what I, when I was proposing it, was thinking it would be most about, was exploring the sort of incongruencies between how the medical profession comes to understand what good end-of-life care or good care for those with life-limiting illnesses is and how individuals come to understand that. And I think the insight that I've gotten from asking these three questions about death, which is you know, not very much within the, the scope of my project, and it's more just this thing that I... I, I mean, everything is in, in the scope of the project in my life, uh, I suppose, but it's not so directly related to, I guess, the more quote-unquote traditional work that I'm doing this year. Uh, the insight that I've got from just going around and asking people about their various thoughts and feelings on death, death and dying is that I think we generally all sort of want the same things and it's a first to be treated with dignity and to be respected, a second to feel like we lived a, a good and meaningful life, and third to at the end of life die in a way that is without pain, which in a lot of ways I think is dying with a greater sense of dignity, perhaps. Um, and it, that's been an interesting sort of insight to have lockstep to the work that I'm doing, which is thinking a lot more about, okay, what are the cultural or social nuance that occurs in these interactions between patients and providers? Um, because it's made me think, okay, if everybody is generally wanting these, these same sorts of things, um, maybe the question is less about where do the incongruencies exist and between patient and provider and more about where do the incongruencies in the interaction exist between what is happening and what most people are saying they want or what that individual who's sitting on the other side of the desk from the doctor actually wants. So have you seen in your travels a place where there was a nugget of truth or wisdom or grace in the way that healthcare systems or providers are supporting patients in, in having those things that they want. Um, you know, a nugget that you wish or would hope we could take in the United States and that we could learn from. Yeah, that's actually very much so the last four weeks that I spent um, in the south of India in a city called Trivandrum with an organization called Pallium India, I think reminded me of what palliative care really is in the broadest sense, very powerfully. Um, so I guess palliative care is, if you look at the definitions, they talk about supporting those with, uh, you know, supporting more or less the whole person face, whose whole person and family who are facing uh, serious life-limiting or life-threatening illness. And I think in the United States, and 
like personally prior to going into this year when I thought about okay how does the medical community support people and families facing life-limiting or life-threatening illnesses it was okay providing a high quality of care okay attending to the psychosocial needs of the family this that and the other um you know and then I'm with Pallium India and I'm talking to the social workers and I'm hearing about oh their educational support program for the children of maybe a, a parent who's ill and unable to work or their vocational education program in which they perhaps train a spouse who now needs to provide for a family because uh, the person that was the original breadwinner can no longer work. Or if they retrain somebody after, uh, let's say, a, a, you know, they retrain somebody who's now paraplegic and uh, unable to work in their previous occupation, they help provide them training for a new occupation. Um, it was really supporting that family and that individual in every sense of the word of support. And for me, that made me think, or has made me think about perhaps all the ways, all the things in the, all the ways in the United States in which we're maybe not supporting people in the same way. And you can argue that, you know, perhaps in the United States, you know, there are other programs that exist to help retrain or rehabilitate people. But, you know, the United States is such a large and varied country, and particularly depending on, you know, your race, your sex, your religion, and and your identity, how the services provided to you could be quite different from that to somebody else. I think it's made me think about, okay, so where, where are those gaps existing in supporting individuals in the United States that are being thought about very carefully here? When you think about the care that you've seen in your travels, how have LGBTQ folks been treated or have you, have you interacted and seen folks who are LGBTQ receiving end-of-life care in, in your travel? The two countries where I was like really, you know, was there to, to, to set my roots for a couple of months and do the work, you know, I, that was, it's Greece and India. And you know, those are countries both where it's complicated to different degrees to be a member of the LGBT community, where it's not necessarily socially accepted in every part. It is in some, there are, you know, in, in major cities in Greece, it's, it's pretty accepted. And I, there are protections for LGBT individuals in place in both countries, but, um, you know, in, in the rural settings, in the, in the villages in Greece, in the, I'd argue that, you know, outside and even within some of the cities in India, it's still, um, and maybe not a, a label that many people are sort of heralding. So I don't, I, the answer is, is I don't know to be honest, but I, when I was in London having all that fun for four weeks, I did attend a conference at the uh, Cicely Saunders Institute that was an access care conference entitled Broadening the LGBTQ Healthcare Agenda. Um, and I was, in that moment, it was right after I'd come off of two months in Greece, and it was this, uh, it was about four weeks in London, that was a bit of an interlude to attend a couple, a com this conference and another conference. Um, I was sitting in that conference and I was thinking about all of the things that they're doing in the UK to be specifically thinking about how do we provide quality end-of-life care to LGBT populations. And I was thinking about that as somebody who, to be honest, prior to this year, you know, understood my sexual identity, but was never really one to, I guess, like identify with the label. And as I was sitting there, I was realizing, oh, you know, what a privilege it is to be able to claim the label because, you know, coming from Wellesley and coming from, you know, running around Boston and Cambridge for four years, like, those are places where 
you know, I, I never felt like I needed to, to really claim the label because, you know, if my girlfriend and I had walked down the street, nobody would have really, nobody did ever bat an eye at us. Um, but, you know, I was, I so vividly remember sitting there and thinking like, what a privilege to be able to live in a place where you can say that and where you can voice that to healthcare providers and have care delivered to you in a way that is comp uh, compatible with that. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. So I, so, so I guess the, the answer, I don't know, is telling of that. As you're doing your, your traveling and your research and coming from an environment in the United States where you were able to be comfortable with who you are living your life without feeling like you had to claim a label. What is it like being a researcher who's looking at healthcare overseas in other countries as a lesbian? And do you feel like you're able, are you able to be out with folks or do you feel like you're having to be quiet about that part of you? I'm curious how you're navigating that as a researcher of healthcare and, and what that feels like. I mean, so it certainly depends. You know, I don't, the way that I've had to navigate it is as soon as I, once I come to trust somebody and, and I, and I feel that they're, you know, somebody who's safe to reveal that to, it's not, it's not like I decide one day, like, here you go, I'm going to tell you this thing about myself. But once I've just sort of built a rapport and a trust with somebody to the extent I can, you know, if I, if I tell stories about you know, people I've dated back home, I can be careful, or I, I can remind myself I no longer have to be so careful to gender them as they always. Because hmm. um, it feels wrong to me to, to misgender people I've dated in the past, but mm -hmm. it, it's not always, I don't know if it's always right in situations I've been put in when I'm asked questions about you know relationships I've had or you know people that have been important to me to gender them as she. And so I've often had to sort of be very careful and gender people as they, uh, just to sort of walk that line for myself between preserving and honoring who they are to me and not, and respecting what the nuance of the situation I might be in. Um, I mean, it doesn't, I don't think it comes up so much in my day to day. Uh, I mean, I'm certainly asked a lot about if I have a boyfriend back home and I, cause culturally in India, that's, it's, you know, 22, you know, a lot of people in this country are thinking about marriage at, at this age. Um, and so, <laughs> so I'm asked a lot about boyfriends back home, which, I always sort of just have to laugh at and be like, nope. And so, so I guess in, in some ways, I, you know, I, whenever I am asked, I do, I do have to sort of give the like, nope, I don't have a boyfriend back home answer. And no, it's true. Uh, and, and sort of like wink to myself and, and, you know, but I think it was actually interesting. I think the way that my sexual identity has intersected the most with my work was actually before this fellowship. And it was, uh, as a hospice volunteer in Boston. And it was when I was met with that same question, you know, I, I always did my hospice shift on Friday afternoons, um, just because that's what worked best with my academic schedule. Uh, and so I, I spent a lot of Friday, Friday afternoons into evenings, you know, running around a hospice in Massachusetts. And, you know, somebody, I, I would have patients that would say things to me like, don't you have a boyfriend that's like waiting for you to go do something tonight? Because um, it was Friday, and I'd always have to, in, in you know, in in that sense, when I was in Boston and I was, you know, living my life fully and completely, I would I would actually have to censor that, and I'd actually have to say like, oh no, you know, there's 
nope, I'm, I'm here and I'm attending to you right now. Like, this is my Friday night fun. And, and that was actually, I, you know, I never really thought about that till you asked that question that I would do that there. And I think it's because there, there is a little bit, you know, it, as a hospice volunteer, it is, it's, it's not a therapeutic relationship in the you know, traditional sense, but it is very much a one-sided relationship where you're, you're bonding with somebody and, and the focus is on them. Though, you know, you can, you allow a lot more of yourself out than you ever would if I was their therapist, for example. Um, but that was always a part of myself that I never let out. And I think it was because I felt the, it be perhaps in my mind that the, the distinction between the, the cultural norms of individuals who are in their seventies and eighties and people who are in their twenties. Interesting. And, and I ask you just cause I'm, I'm curious, I've navigated hmm. my life as a, as a lesbian, but also as a lesbian who's traveled. And yeah, I, I know when I was in Thailand, my I was doing a Fulbright Specialist Award, and when I was there, uh, I definitely had moments where I caught myself wanting to censor, and yeah. but but I was gosh, it was ten years ago. I was thirty seven, so I'd had more years to kind of figure out how I would navigate situations, and I ended up deciding I would tell people, yes, I'm I'm married and I'm married to a woman, um, but every disclosure comes with a cost. And the cost was that everyone throughout Thailand that I met, um, because I wore a wedding ring, everyone, once they realized I was married to a woman, everyone I met, almost without exception, asked me if I was the man or the woman. <laughs> and so, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So for six weeks in Thailand, I had to explain over and over and over again that there are, when there are two women, there is no man or woman. That is what makes them lesbians. And so, everything comes with a cost. Yeah, Had course. I been 10 years younger, I think I probably would have just said that I wasn't married. I, 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 I don't know. I, and I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. Yeah. I was just curious because you are younger than I am and you're growing up, you've grown up in a different generation. So I love hearing how other people are navigating this. I think it's hard no matter what generation we're in to navigate those situations and figure out who we tell what about ourselves. You know, I, I sometimes feel this interesting tension here where I, you know, I was saying to a friend, I was in, in Trivandrum's in the, the southern state of Kerala, that's generally considered a, a little bit more conservative than the rest of the country. Um, and so the, you know, every woman is always, most people actually, but generally every woman is in long pants and, and shirts that are sort of down to like to the elbows or past them. Not everybody, but, but by and large. Um, and that's sort of the culturally respectful way to dress as well. And I remember saying to a friend, I was like, man, Trivandrum needs more women running around in shorts around here. And I had to like, like sort of like catch myself because I know, like I'm, I'm, I understand that I'm going into other cultures and other countries and being met largely with just wide open arms and, mm -hmm. and my side of the bargain, meeting them with my wide open arms is, is respecting the, the cultural nuance and practice in the place. And, you know, for as much as at times I want to be, you know, the, the radical Wellesley woman that's out, you know, running laps at the zoo, running laps at the park by the zoo in shorts and like showing them that, you know, you know, women have legs too, sort of thing. Uh, it's, it's not always the right situation to do that. Right. And that's the balance that I try to strike. Though I will say right before, two days before I left, I was um, like, I have this wonderful relationship with a palliative care social worker who happens to be my best friend's mom. Um, and she, you know, it very much sort of became like my Boston mom over the years because they live in Boston. 
Um, and so I, I was with her in the like few days right before I left to, to do this Watson. So part of the Watson is you're not allowed back in the United States for a calendar year. So I, I keep telling people I'm politically exiled. Uh, maybe like is not what I should be doing. You know, if I'm like reticent about my identity, I maybe shouldn't be like I'm politically exiled. But but so you're not allowed back for a year. Uh, and and so I you know I was thinking sort of out loud with her, and I was like, you know what? Like screw it, I'm gonna get the Megan Rapino haircut, and like I don't care if it brings questions about me or about my identity hmm. into play, like. I want that haircut. Like, that's a really good, that's a really nice haircut, one. Uh, two, it's a wonderful symbol a symbol for our country. Uh, three, that's the sort of courage and candor that I want to embody all year. Like, I'm going to get that freaking haircut. Um, and I remember, like, sitting with her at, at her dinner table and being like, you know, I, I don't care what questions it brings. Like, this is me. And that's, and that's the sort of the face that I want to show to the world. And, hmm. you know, maybe it's, I mean, when people ask me, maybe at times I... I don't show that face so directly, but I think the way that I'm choosing to present myself now is at least my subtle way of embracing who I am. And I guess the interesting part of this too also is at 22, you're still like deciding who you are yes. uh, and, and making those decisions in the context of uh, it's sort of never ending change for a year is, I think, I think is what this fellowship wants, but is um, also very interesting because it forces you to think very critically about what are the tenets of me that are important to carry forward in every mm -hmm. new place in every new context. It sounds like you're doing a really nice job of balancing how to be yourself, but also how to be yourself in a way that's authentic to you while being sensitive to the communities in which you're living. Because if your goal is to learn more about a culture, there are times where sharing who you are, or I'll say me sharing who I am as a lesbian, it could potentially put up a barrier that might affect rapport. And so you, so you have to be strategic and, you know, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in being super out for myself in every aspect mm -hmm. of my life. But I know that there are times where I, I am less out than I probably would be otherwise if I'm traveling because there is this, this piece around rapport building, but also around safety. As you think about the things that you've learned from people about death, how has it changed the way that you think about your own death? Oh, that's a really good question. Because spoiler alert, you will eventually die. We die. We all, we all do, right? <laughs> right, right, right. You know, I do tell people two things. You know, the first is when I like decide to indulge in an extra sweet or an extra piece of cake and I get sort of like a raised eyebrow. I tell them, you know, today's the fastest my, my metabolism is ever going to be for the rest of my life. And so, so I always justify that. Uh, and I sort of do a similar thing with death. I'll do some like something odd and I'll be like, I'm one day closer to dying. And you know, you never quite know. So might as well. Um, it's interesting because the way that, so my three questions about death, um, the way that I actually thought of them was, there were sort of questions that I was asking myself throughout this experience because I think being a Watson Fellow is just as much of a professional experience as it is a personal experience. And I think particularly, you know, when it's 3 a.m. and you're waking up in a new country because you're completely jet lagged and your stomach is like killing you because you just ate a bunch of new food and, and you, you know, you haven't slept because you've just been on the flight and all those sorts of things. 
Um, and you have the thought, oh my God, what did I do? Like what sort of social experiment did I sign myself up for for a year? I think those are the moments in particular when you're on the job. Uh, so it's a, it's a delicate balance between the professional and the personal and, and the lines aren't always so clear. And so I was asking myself things like, you know, when is the last time I talked about death or dying? When I was feeling anxious about, you know, maybe not having done enough, quote, on, I'm doing big air quotes right now, that done enough for my project. You know, asking myself, secondly, am I scared of dying when I felt some sort of hesitation or block with engaging with my project? Um, and asking myself the last question, which is that I ask people, which is, are you currently dying? Um, and, you know, in those moments when I was like, when I felt like I was about to die, like, you know, you could feel like you're about to die for many reasons. Sometimes it's like, I need to like sit down in a room and not talk mm -hmm. to anybody for an hour or, or else I'm going to like implode. Um, and so if anything, I think that I don't, I don't know if it's, I mean, it's made me want to, I think, continue to live my life how I live it this year as a Watson fellow is, is I guess how it's changed because as a Watson fellow, you, you sort of have to, you have to put a lot of trust in people uh, a lot of the time because you're, you know, you're landing in a new place and you're, you wanting and needing in a lot of ways to form social connections, both for the project and for, you know, your own personal sort of well-being. And so there are times when, you know, you, 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 I had talked to more strangers this year than I've probably ever talked to in my life. And I've done so many more things this year than I think I would have done if I was just at home in Boston or just you know, in a city in the U.S. working a job because I'll, I'll have in the back of my mind this thought that, you know, oh, when am I, you know, when am I ever going to be in India again or when am I ever going to be in Greece again and maybe I should pu push myself to do something. But the flip side of that is I think you're also then forced to strike the balance between feeling compelled to go do everything and see everything and knowing what feels right for you. Like, you know, that four weeks that I spent in London uh, in the UK, I should say, I didn't go to a single museum in London. And like, I, you know, you're, I know you're supposed to go to the museums in London and you're supposed to take in all the culture. Um, but I really just sort of needed a couple weeks where I could sit and I could write and I could think and I could get myself straight before the next part of my project. Mm -hmm. And so. Well, and how much of our lives do we spend doing the things that we are, we feel like we're supposed to be doing? So right. when people travel and you have a list of places that you feel like you're supposed to go, it sounds like the way that you did London was exactly the way you were supposed to do London because you right, did the right. things you wanted to do. And how many things do we do out of obligation because we feel like we have to check it right. off our list as opposed to because we get true passion and joy from it. Right. And so, and so if anything, that's exactly how my thinking about death has changed and, and thinking about, I think thinking about dying is also thinking about living. Um, so it's changed my perspective in that way. And, knowing what is that balance between what I actually want to do and how much of what I feel like I should be doing is what I actually want to be doing hmm. and should be doing for myself. My other question, it's going to sound like a weird question, although all okay, my questions no, it's fine. tend to I mean, sound you're kind of weird. somebody who literally like goes up to strangers in foreign countries and says, can I ask you three questions about death? So like, okay, I am no stranger to weird questions. So have you been with people at the moment they die? No, actually not, not, I mean, I've been actually like not present with the person, but I've been 
and there was actually somebody that passed away when in so the office that I was in with Pali and India for the past month is both like their like everybody that works at the organization that isn't out going and doing home care is in one building um, and that includes their inpatient unit and so I've been there when somebody has passed away but I haven't been present with somebody as they've died either in this experience or in my experience as a hospice volunteer if you get the opportunity it it's amazing it's the most precious incredible thing and you're asking such great questions of people about their thoughts and feelings about death and and as you're on this journey you're learning things about your thoughts and feelings about death but when you're present at the moment where someone ceases to be alive you will never feel more alive than you do in that moment it's it's a it's a powerful thing so my wish for you is that you have a chance to have that opportunity because it's it's pretty incredible. I really appreciate you taking time in your travels to talk with me and I'm looking forward to following your travels on your blog. Uh, for the folks who are listening today, and I'm gonna go ahead and put your a link to your blog in the blurb that will go on the MDASH website, but can you tell us what the website is for your, for your travel blog? Sure, so it's www peripateticpalliation.com. I love alliterations and I, you know, I had to get something related to palliative care in there and something related to travel. So peripatetic, peripatetic palliation it became. That's fabulous. That's fantastic. And how can folks find you on Twitter or Instagram? So on Twitter, I am uh, at Sophia Zupants, my name. And then uh, on Instagram, I, I don't have a personal Instagram, but I do have the account where I publish the answers, the anonymous answers that I ask people give me when I ask them the three questions with about death along with a picture of their feet um, on the feed so that it's a feed that's just filled with pictures of people's feet and uh, captions about their answers to the three questions about death it's at 3q about death and then there's a Facebook page that's under that same handle as well well thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today and good luck in your travel yes thank you for having me You've been listening to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. You can find us online at em-podcast.com, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Kim Aquaviva. For information about how to be a guest on the show, visit our website. Thanks so much for listening.